Thank you for joining us today. This is Expository Insights with Pastor Lyle Wall. The first 11 verses in John chapter 12 give us another familiar as well as beautiful and tender account in Jesus' ministry, Mary anointing him with costly oil. We are going to explore extravagant worship, and we will see four key things involved in extravagant worship. Extravagance is alive and well. The streams of over-the-top, lavish events and purchases overflow. Some are planned. The funeral for Queen Elizabeth is estimated to have cost about $200 million. The coronation of King Charles is estimated to have cost about $125 million. Some extravagances unexpectedly almost fall into a person's lap. You may have heard or read about it. A man bought an 8-centimeter or 3-inch jeweled gold egg with a watch inside at a flea market for $13,000. That's a lot of money, at least to me. His plan was to break it up and cash in on the value of the jewels, watch, and gold. But he ran into a problem. No one offered him more than he paid for it. So he was stuck with it as it was, intact. One evening he googled the word egg and the name of the watch, and he got the surprise of his life. The ornament turned out to be a Fabergé egg that Russian Emperor Alexander III gave to his wife for Easter in 1887. The experts on Fabergé's work authenticated it as genuine and put a value on it of, get this, 30 to 40 million dollars. What an extravagant windfall! John tells us about extravagance in the first part of chapter 12 of his Gospel. An extravagant possession, an extravagant gift, an extravagant sacrifice, and, most importantly, an extravagant act of worship. That is what we are looking at today, extravagant worship. I realize that, sadly and incorrectly, today in much of the church, worship refers only to music. So we need to remember worship is a believer's response to God with all of his or her being, giving him honor and declaring his worth for all that he is and does. Let me repeat that. Worship is a believer's response to God with all of his or her being, giving him honor and declaring his worth for all that he is and does. Yes, it does include music. As Second Chronicles chapter 29 records, the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the trumpets sounded. But worship includes so much more. Without taking the time today to cite the many references, note that the Bible tells us that worship is both individual and together with others, includes giving thanks and praise to God, presenting offerings to God, confessing our sins to God. Worship is for and in all times, times of sorrow as well as joy, for tough times as well as good times. 
Worship includes living as a holy sacrifice to God day to day in all we do, which, the Bible tells us, is our spiritual service of worship. So, once more, remember that worship is a believer's response to God with all of his or her being, giving him honor and declaring his worth for all that he is and does. Extravagant worship is beyond routine duty. It is over-the-top, lavish worship. That is what we are looking at. The central truth for today is that Jesus' extravagant grace calls for extravagant worship. We see four parts of extravagant worship from the people in these verses. First, there is the extravagant, over-the-top, love and devotion. Let's rewind to place the events. In chapter 11, Jesus came to Bethany, to the home of his close friends Lazarus, his sisters Martha, and Mary. John tells us Jesus loved them. They were very close to him, and he was very close to them. Lazarus had become sick and died. He had been in the tomb for four days when Jesus arrived. Jesus told people to open the tomb, then he raised Lazarus back to life. The family and all the people who had gathered to console them now celebrated. The news spread. Verse 45 tells us that many of the people who came to Mary, both those who came to console and those who came later because of the news of Jesus raising Lazarus, seeing the resurrected living Lazarus, believed in Jesus. The already deep love and devotion of Lazarus, Mary and Martha for Jesus, deepened. Their love and devotion is what drove the events, the extravagant worship we see here. Now as chapter 12 opens, the family and others threw a party to honor Jesus. Martha was serving. Mary was close to Jesus. Lazarus was sitting there with the others. Everyone was celebrating. Well, not quite everyone. When Mary used some very expensive perfume to anoint Jesus, John tells us Judas became indignant at what he said was wasting that valuable perfume. He said it could have been better used to help the poor. What he said here displayed his growing, intensifying, self-centered focus. Let's pick it up at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who intended to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the proceeds given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he kept the money box. And as he kept the money box, he used to steal from what was put into it. The parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14 indicate that the other disciples also grumbled about the waste of this very valuable perfume. But John zeroes in on more than grumbling. He puts the spotlight on the heart of Judas. These are the first words of Judas that are recorded in the Gospels. 
and the only insight into his character prior to his betrayal of Jesus. He was with Jesus for over three years, listening to his teaching, seeing his love and grace, taking in the power of his miracles, and yet his self-centered focus, his greed and stealing, became more solidified. His example proves that being around the truth does not guarantee coming to belief, as well as the great danger of not dealing with sin, of not confessing and turning from it. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's love and devotion to Jesus was not limited to a sincere and polite thank you or a budget-minded party. Their love in response to his grace was over-the-top, extravagant. Question. Is your love and devotion to Jesus, is my love and devotion to Jesus extravagant, or is it polite, sincere, but restrained and limited by our own or others' priorities and views? Is our love for Jesus something like the young man who wrote to his girlfriend, I love you beyond words. There are not enough words in the dictionary to describe my love for you. I would crawl on my knees through the burning sand of the Sahara Desert to come to you. I would swim through shark-infested waters to come to you. I would climb Mount Everest to come to you. I would fight the most fierce dragons to come to you. I cannot wait to see you on Thursday, if it doesn't rain. Deep feelings and beautiful words are good, but alone they do not equal true, deep love. This young man needed to live what he wrote. Extravagant worship is marked by over-the-top extravagant love for God. Yes, as the Apostle Paul instructs us, our worship is to be offered to God properly and in an orderly way, not out of control and certainly not disrespectful. But it is not to be tamed or domesticated. It should come from a heart overflowing with love for who God is and what he has done for us. Luke's Gospel records a similar but different event of Jesus being anointed with costly oil. When some there complained, saying that the woman was a sinner, and so Jesus should not have allowed it, he said, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Jesus tells us, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is, love, be devoted to God with our entire being in every aspect and way. Jesus tells us ahead in chapter 14 that if we truly love him, we will keep his commandments. We will line up our living so that our thoughts, words, and actions follow and are shaped by him and his truth. As John wrote in his first letter, Little children, let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. 
Jesus' extravagant grace calls for extravagant love and devotion as part of our worship. God's extravagant grace calls for this kind of extravagant worship. Next, extravagant worship includes extravagant humility. Notice Mary's deep humility in verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very expensive perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Her act of worship was costly. Verse 5 tells us the perfume was worth an entire year's wages for a working man. I would be very surprised if any man here had spent one year's earnings on perfume for his wife. Mary took the place of a servant when she anointed Jesus. She didn't have one of her servants do this for her, but did it herself. It was not below her to do this. This was personal. She humbled herself. Then she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. It was the custom or tradition for women to keep their hair bound in public, not hanging loose. Mary was more concerned about ministering to Jesus than she was about what others might think. Perhaps she understood that Jesus' time of giving himself for her and the world was at hand. Perhaps not. We know that when Judas objected to this extravagance, saying it could be spent to help the poor, Jesus told him and the whole group, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For Mary, this was true, deep humility. King David also gave us an example of this. He led a joyful parade with shouting, singing, and dancing as they brought the Ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. His wife Michael was disgusted at his public display since he was the king and despised him. David told her, I was dancing before the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord, and I might demean myself even more than this and be lowly in my own sight. Or, in another version, Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. He wasn't trying to impress people. He was more concerned about worshiping God than about what some might think. But Mary's and our key example of humility is Jesus himself. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Starting at verse 6, it tells us, As he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. I cannot wrap my mind around the depths, the perfect humility of Jesus as he came into this world as one of us 
to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Worship is responding to God with all of our being to who God is and what He has done. There is no place in true worship for elevating ourselves, comparing ourselves with others, being critical of others, for seeing some roles in ministry for God as being beneath us. Nor is there a place for the focus being on our experience of worship rather than our action, our response to God. Yes, our feelings are involved as well as our will. We've just seen that. But worship is to humbly give the sacrifice of praise and thankfulness to God. Jesus' extravagant grace calls for extravagant humility as part of our worship. Extravagant worship also includes extravagant thankfulness. That entire evening in Bethany was an expression of thankfulness to Jesus by Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and the others gathered. Martha's serving Jesus and the guests was an act of thanksgiving. Lazarus sharing, listening, and I'm sure trying to answer a lot of questions was also part of his great gratitude to Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have been there to ask him some questions about his experience and hear his answers? And Mary. Mary's loving, selfless, honoring Jesus was the overflow of her profound thankfulness to him. One of the marks of a redeemed child of God is thankfulness. Thankfulness is without exception part of all true worship. In sharp contrast are the ungodly, who, although they see evidence of God and His work all around them, do not acknowledge Him as God, do not, as Paul wrote, honor Him as God or give thanks. Expressions of thankfulness, calls to be thankful, spill over the pages of the Bible. Psalm 136 opens, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good for his faithfulness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his faithfulness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his faithfulness is everlasting. The psalm goes on to give examples and reasons for thankfulness before it concludes with, Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his faithfulness is everlasting. The Apostle Paul tells us that part of living the Christian life is to be overflowing with gratitude. He wrote, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk, or live, in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Sometimes we might think we don't have much to be thankful for. Times when everything seems to go wrong. Times when we or others we love are seriously ill. Times when people we love die. Times of loss. Right now the homes of some people around us have been burned to the ground. In those times, we need to look back to the cross 
Look back over the days and years of our lives. Turn over the rocks of events of the past and let the sun shine on God's great grace. And then there are things in which there is more to be thankful for than we might think at first. A little boy was asked what he was thankful for. He answered, my glasses. Why are you thankful for your glasses? Because they help you see better? No, he said. I'm thankful for my glasses because they keep the other boys from hitting me and fighting with me and the girls from kissing me. That's not positive thinking detached from the negatives or ignoring them, but is finding and focusing on things for which he truly could be and was thankful. How thankful are you? Are you over the top in being thankful and expressing your thankfulness to God? Can you immediately think of at least 10 specific things you have thanked God for in the last day? Jesus' extravagant grace calls for extravagant thankfulness as part of our worship. And then, extravagant worship includes extravagant giving. Mary used a very expensive perfume to anoint Jesus. The perfume came from a plant found only in the Himalayan mountain regions of India, Nepal, and China. It was very expensive and so extravagant. Verse 5 tells us this perfume was worth about 300 denarii. A laborer in that time worked up to 12 hours a day, six days a week, and was paid one denarii for each day's work. So it would take a full year's wages, before taxes, to buy this perfume. It goes without saying that it was expensive, extravagant. The most expensive perfume today that I could find is the Spirit of Dubai Shemuk. The Shemuk roughly translates to deserving the highest. It costs a mere $1.3 million. The perfume bottle has 3,571 sparkling diamonds, totaling 38 carats, topaz, pearls, 2,479 grams of 18-carat gold, and 5,892 grams of pure silver. Now, if $1.3 million sounds a bit pricey, you can get Chanel Grand Extrate perfume for only $4,200 an ounce. And if that's still too much, you can get the old standby, Chanel Number no. 5, for under $200. We don't know if Mary's family was wealthy or if this was a treasure passed down over the years. In any event, using, giving this perfume to anoint Jesus was extravagant, very extravagant. True, lavish worship gives to God, gives generously to Him. When Moses directed the people to bring contributions for building the tabernacle, the people responded generously, so generously that they had more than enough. In fact, the people gave so much that Moses issued an order. Don't prepare any more gifts for the sanctuary. We have enough. 
Moving ahead to the church in the first century, recall that Paul said the Macedonian church, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily, begging us with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. True worshipers today give generously to God. One pastor prayed after the Sunday offering, O Lord, despite what we say, this is what we really think of you. While this may sound too pointed to some people, what we give to God and the attitude of our heart in giving it is a reflection of what we really think about Him. Please note, it's not just our money, but as in the Macedonian believers, first giving ourselves to God, giving all our plans and dreams, abilities, and creativity to God. Extravagant worship includes extravagant giving. One writer tells us, I can safely say, on the authority of all that is revealed in the Word of God, that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. You see, worship is not only what we should be doing day to day now, it is what we will be doing forever in heaven. There is a scene from heaven in the last book of the Bible which shows us that whenever the four living beings who surround the throne of God, who do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come, then others give glory, honor, and thanks to God, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they were created. We too will, in many ways, be constantly serving, worshiping God in heaven. So think about these words again. Anyone who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. It can be easy to explain a lack of interest in worship personally or together with others in church with, I'm too busy, I've got more pressing things to do, or it's hard to understand what I'm reading in the Bible, I get distracted when I pray, the worship services don't interest me, I'm bored. True worship is dependent on me, not on what is or is not going on around me, nor what happens to me. It is my response to who God is and what He does. It is my responsibility and opportunity. It involves my determined effort. And God's extravagant grace calls for extravagant worship from me from you, from all of us. Take a look at your attitude and practice of worship. 
Think about all that Jesus is and has done for you. Decide that you will worship him, that you will worship him extravagantly. Bow with me in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for your amazing, extravagant grace to us. Thank you for this beautiful picture of responding to your extravagant grace with extravagant worship. Forgive us for times when we entered worship services without really thinking and preparing to worship you. For times when our focus has been on evaluating what is going on rather than worshiping you. For times when we have gone through days without consciously worshiping you in what we think, say, and do. Enable and lead us to worship you as we should, extravagantly, in every day and circumstance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.